Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish Podcast. Computer-aided biology platform helps companies meet the challenges of 21st century biomanufacturing. I'm Brady Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Marcus Gershader, Chief Scientific Officer at Synthase. Marcus co-founded Synthase after working as a research associate in synthetic biology at University College London, where he developed novel biosynthesis methods using pathway engineering. Prior to UCL, he was a biotransformation scientist working as part of an industrial biotechnology group that conducted more than 90 contract research projects for over 20 clients. Marcus has a PhD in plant biochemistry from Durham. I'd like to start uh, by asking if you could tell us a bit about the concept of bioprocessing 4.0 and what it means to the industry. The term bioprocessing 4.0 has come from a kind of derived from the terms of industry 4.0. And what that's referring to is the various industrial revolutions which have happened, which has made human production ever more uh, sophisticated and efficient through the ages. So starting with the first industrial revolution, which is probably the most famous, which is when steam started to be used as a power source, replacing manual effort for chemical energy, which then dramatically increases the productivity that's possible um, within industry. And then moving on to electrification and the innovation of production lines, getting ever more efficient ways of uh, producing products. And then the third industrial revolution was around automation and electronic control of that automation. So then finally you come to industry 4.0, as it's often referred to. And this is where we're then thinking about, okay, how can we connect all of the different devices and pieces of automation that we might have in a particular setting and connect those in turn to the digital world? So cloud computing, where you can have data storage, data processing, and data analysis. So it then elevates this sort of use of automated production just that one level higher and allows us really sophisticated knowledge and control of what's going on. We think that this is particularly important for an area such as bioprocessing and biological biotechnology uh, because of the complexity of what we're dealing with. So we really need to be able to get to grips with the complexity of the processes we're running and all of the data that's coming out of those and get them into a really coherent format such that we can then use them um, as we as we progress. That's really interesting. Uh, could you explain the solutions that Synthase provides in this area? Synthase didn't start out as a software company as we are now. So these days we provide software to help people do their science. But the reason we made the software in the first place is because we were a bioprocessing company that was looking for ways of doing more sophisticated automated experiments in order to address the complexities of the biology that we are looking to do. So the core capability of our software, Antha, is the auto-generation of automated instructions for biological protocols. What this means is that a scientist can rapidly specify a protocol that they want to run, and Antha works out all the details, down to the details of every pipetting step of how to run that protocol. It can convert those detailed actions into the scripts that are needed by a particular piece of automation then to run that protocol. So it goes all the way from the intent that the scientist has given the software all the way through to all the details that are needed to actually run that intended experiment. So that includes auto-calculating all the volumes and concentrations, the reagents and the samples that are needed and shows the user how to set those reagents up on the automation. So that then the user can then hit go and the robot will then run the specified protocol with the instructions that Antha had auto-generated. 
that makes automation substantially more usable and powerful. At the moment, there's a real issue around lab automation in that it's highly inflexible due to the complexities of programming it. And so what Anther allows is a much more flexible use of automation and um, be used in a lot more contexts and for a lot more complex experimentation. So that's kind of where we started and it's allowed us to do some really quite cool experiments that we're really proud of and generated a number of case studies which show the power of using automation in our science. But it also has a really big beneficial knock-on effect when it comes to digital integration. If we think about all of the different devices we have within the lab, obviously automation is only a small part of that, even in labs that use automation. And actually we have a lot of analytical devices in particular, which are then associated with those bits of automation, which actually produce the data, which is the whole point of us running the experiment in the first place. What we need is a way of structuring all the data from all of these diverse bits of equipment. Now, because Antha has generated all of the pipetting steps that go on in a particular protocol, it means that it has that detailed structure of the experiment. So at the end of any chain of pipetting actions, there's often this analytical device that produces some data, but Antha has that chain of provenance of every data point that's produced as part of an experiment. And so what it means is it can trace back the full provenance of exactly where a data point has come from, and hence, if it can do that for all the data in a particular experiment, it can auto-structure the data in the context of the experimental design. We found this to be a real issue because as we are running ever more complex and, and high-throughput experiments, then actually the bottleneck moved into data structuring. And so what we find is that by using a more automated method overall in the lab, it then gives us this opportunity for auto-data structuring as well. So Antha has become this tool which allows the automation of lab processes, but then also the automation of the data processing that goes on from those lab processes and allows that in a very dynamic and flexible way because it's updating those data structures as the structures of the experiments update. I think it's really great that you started as a bioprocessing company because you understand exactly what scientists in this area would need and can structure uh, tools that would be specifically designed to help in the scientific area. Could you tell us a little bit more about the technology behind the product? It does give us an insight that uh, maybe otherwise we wouldn't have, and um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it as a path to go down as a company of, of fundamentally restructuring yourself around a, an entirely different business model, but it has given us that insight. And one of those things it allowed us to do was to take that step back and think about, okay, if we, need, if we want a new way of programming automation that doesn't re rely on planning every, every detail out yourself and programming in every single perpetuating step yourself in a somewhat laborious manner, then what information would a potential piece of software need in order to be able to auto-calculate all of those details itself? So we took this kind of step back and thought, you know, as, as the mixture of biologists and software engineers that we have here about what are the different bits of information that are required. So the first bit is you need some way of specifying a particular protocol, right? So if we think about some kind of assay protocol that has some dilution steps in it, and then each of those dilutions might then have, you know, technical replicates made of them, then what we can do in Anther is we can basically take in uh, something which specifies the samples that need to be diluted, um, specifies that we want a dilution step after that, and then technical replicates after that. So that's kind of the, the first bit. We build that framework of a, of a specific protocol. But then you actually need to put some specifics around that. 
in this case, you know, how many dilutions do we want to do? What's the dilution factor? What's the final volume of the dilution? What kind of liquids are we diluting? And then, you know, when we go on to the replication, like what's the final volume of each replicate and how many replicates do we want to make? So that's kind of the second part of the information is all the kind of parameters that go against the particular protocol. And this can often be in the form of an experimental design or, you know, a sample list, which needs to go through an analytical workflow. And then finally, with those two bits of information, you have enough to basically say, okay, conceptually, we can move liquids around in this way to, to satisfy the design. But then you just need the pragmatic details of the bits of equipment that you're going to be running it on and the different consumables that you're going to put onto that equipment. Because that actually kind of gives you the practical, physical constraints that you're going to run that protocol within. So the final thing, bit of information, the third bit of information you need is, yeah, what equipment are you using and what consumables are going on that piece of equipment? And once you've got those three bits of information, which are quite kind of high level, quite conceptual, then Anthra can then auto-generate all the low level, much more kind of tedious instructions. So what that means is that then if you want to change your protocol, so all of a sudden you realize that you don't need the number of technical replicates you were doing because the noise you were expecting was much lower than you were expecting or something like that, then all you have to do is just change, you know, technical replicates from four to two and regenerate the instructions and it will automatically then calculate an entirely new automated protocol on the fly. Then when you've got that set of, sort of low-level instructions, those instructions can then be passed down to a local piece of software. So most of Anth is in the cloud and, and it's making doing all of these calculations in the cloud, working out all of the different steps that have to be done. And then it passes that those very specific instructions then to a bit of Anthra that sits on the PC that that particular device is connected to. So every device in the lab um, effectively has a PC connected to it. And so um, what we have is a piece of software called Anthra Hub, which then takes these instructions and passes it over to that piece of equipment. And then the user can come along and see the way that Anthra has specified how to set up that piece of equipment. And once they're happy that it's set up correctly, they can just hit go in Anthra and then that piece of automation will run that protocol for them. So that's essentially how it works. Most of it's based in the cloud, but then we have these bits that obviously have to talk to the bits in the lab. So it's kind of combining these 4.0 technologies, I guess, of uh, sort of Internet of Things, of, of connecting the different parts of that, but also then the processing that we can have access to in, with cloud computing. It's really great that it's automation in such a way that makes it uh, easier for scientists to use and to work with in the lab. I'm wondering, do you have any case studies that you could share so listeners could hear actually how this would work uh, and relate to bioprocessing and cell therapy? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is this is something that we've had over the course of our history. Is you know we we've had this kind of quite general capability for quite a while, but often, you know, just talking in these kind of conceptual terms doesn't really kind of hit home quite as much as we might like. So we've done exactly that. We've uh, used our own lab and um, collaborated with various partners over the years to generate a number of different case studies where we've used this auto-generation of automated instructions to then do various different workflows from relatively simple workflows, um, like automated analytical sample preparation. So uh, for say qPCR, we've got a project at the moment where we're working on automating ELISA in this kind of really flexible manner. And then we've got other case studies where we're using the 
this kind of flexibility really to its extreme. So we're doing very complex experiments. So multifactorial experiments like design of experiments for optimization of various processes. So in one case there, one of our customers, Oxford Biomedica, we've co-published a case study with them where they took one of their processes for generating lentiviral vector and improved it, uh, the viral tie to tenfold over the course of just two very sophisticated anther experiments. And they're actually very good at automation themselves and they're very good at programming automation. And they looked at the scripts that anther was auto-generating and they calculated it to be about a week's worth of work um, for each of those experiments that anther was just generating on the fly. And this kind of illustrates why often automation isn't used for these kind of experiments because you're not gonna spend a week programming a piece of automation if you're just going to run that experiment once. Often in biological R&D, this is what we're faced with is, you know, we, we are often looking to dynamically investigate a particular biological system. And so we're not going to have a protocol that we're just going to run over and over and over again. And so without Anther, with the normal ways of programming automation, then you just never get that return on investment. You spend so much time getting that automated method working, and then you have to throw it out for the next experiment. It's just not feasible. That's kind of on the automated sort of, uh, lab process side of things but then we also have just started publishing case studies around how we can do this automated data structuring that I was talking about earlier so particularly in the context of say a bioprocess there's huge amounts of data that's produced from all sorts of different sources so the bioreactors themselves say in an upstream process will have all the online data that's being produced by the sensors there you know every six seconds each one of these sensors spitting out another data point um, and that data all has to be aligned and, and interleaved with data that we get from the samples that we've taken. Maybe, you know, each day we might take another sample from those bioreactors and subject them to you know, five different analytical methods in order to get a deeper insight as to what's going on at that particular time point. So really to get a full picture of what's going on in a particular bioreactor, we need to bring all of these data together. So we've uh, started publishing case studies of where we've been doing that as well and generating these sort of holistic structured data sets which really give us an insight into what's going on in the biology in those particular systems. I think that's great. You know, for a long time, we've talked about increasing efficiency in bioprocessing with various tools and technologies. And I think automation is an important uh, one of those in, in, and also data management, as you mentioned. Could you talk to me a little bit about the vision for computer-aided biology and then how you see the evolution of the space in the next five years? Computer-aided biology is a vision of how we can use 21st century tools applied to really help us unpick these complexities of biology and really give us insights that maybe we wouldn't have been able to have before. So ultimately, we're talking about applying machine learning and those kind of methods enabled by cloud computing to the very complex data sets that biology produces um, in order to give us insight that we might not have had otherwise. So we're not talking about replacing the scientists and engineers with purely AI-driven insight, but it's about flagging things that maybe those scientists might have missed otherwise from these hugely complex data sets. That's a really compelling vision, and you hear about it in a number of different conferences now all, all over the place. And I think there's a growing swell of excitement about what this could potentially offer, not just in things like drug discovery, where actually it's, there's been a number of kind of potentially, I guess, full storms for AI in, in, in drug discovery, but also just in, in the lab in general. And, you know, how do we interpret these bioprocessing results, for example, and 
and uh, make the most out of every bioprocessing run that we're running. But the issue is that to get to that kind of future of that sort of AI augmented insight, then we need to have the routine production of highly structured, beautiful data sets. Um, every time we're doing an experiment, we need those data to be automatically brought together such that we can then compare from experiment to experiment and, and um, make it have it in this much more sort of machine readable ordered format. And at the moment, there's a big issue that people are maybe expecting their scientists to do that data structuring, which is a highly onerous thing. And we've seen in all sorts of different companies, lots of different approaches to this, ranging from quite sophisticated limb systems all the way through to basically Excel and emailing files around and that kind of thing, which isn't as uncommon as you might think, even in some very sophisticated companies. Um, so really, we feel like actually maybe talk of AI for the majority of the industry is a little premature and we need this sort of data structuring to happen first. But then, you know, once we have that data structuring in place and you know, as much automation involved in the actual process of experimentation as possible, then it does open up this possibility of having this ecosystem of different software and hardware tools that all interface with each other, that integrate. So once that structured data set's made, well, then there could be any number of different analytical tools that people might want to then deploy on those data sets in order to glean uh, information from them. So then ultimately you get, get all of these different insights from these uh, digital tools, which you can then bring together to make your next experimental design. And so then that experimental design then goes back in turn into more automated experimentation and producing more automated structured data. So in that way, we've got this kind of cycle of tools all integrated together in a much more sophisticated way than is currently available in the lab. The reason I'm talking about ecosystems of tools and that kind of thing is we don't think that there's going to be any one supplier that's going to provide all of these different parts. We think that there's going to be different solutions in different parts of that cycle, which then a user should be able to integrate them together as they see fit. So there's a critical part of each of the players in the space, then making the interfaces and the APIs, as they're known within software, the, the programming interfaces, which allow for one tool to be seamlessly talking to the next. And so then these you know, big digital visions then become something that we can deploy in a relatively pragmatic way. You know, okay, you want automation for this part of what you work well, okay, we've got the solution for automation there. And then actually that can then talk to um, the next things in the, in the cycle without having just to bite off everything in one big chunk. That makes a lot of sense. I'd like to ask you some questions about your thoughts on building a common culture between science and software. I'd be really interested to hear what you have to say about, about how to build that connection. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting thing because scientists and software engineers tend to think in quite fundamentally different ways. Um, I think as biologists, we're used to a large amount of ambiguity because we're dealing with such a complex system on a day-to-day -day basis. Whereas actually as a software engineer, then actually things are an awful lot more defined and things are a lot more predictable. So software engineers are really used to being able to make things happen in a very powerful way, very quickly. Whereas scientists often we're kind of trained by biology to be a lot more um, kind of wary about uh, making any predictions about how fast we might be able to move forward. 
And so they're just, you know, those kind of quite deeply held preconceptions about what's possible and what isn't possible. And actually what's quite fun is that you can see both sides learning from the other on that. And maybe biologists can look to be a little bit more ambitious and uh, software engineers can realize the complexity of what we're trying to deal with in biology and, and uh, you know, try to um, bend what they know and their attitudes uh, towards that reality. But fundamentally, it's about you know trying to find a common language, common environments that we can work within. And uh, one thing that gets me quite excited about Anther is that actually it's a system that both sides can understand. Um, so the biologist can be saying, "Hey, I'm trying to make this protocol in this kind of way," and the uh, software engineers can immediately see all of the logic behind those protocols and exactly what's intended because it's a highly non-ambiguous system. The moment that something's defined within Anther. And in the end, it, it's, it's quite interesting because I heard this uh, same question asked at a conference recently from someone from Amgen, who's actually, uh, this is a company that's gone through a lot of this kind of digital transformation. And it's interesting because um, the speaker's kind of response to that was uh, almost a shrug. She regarded it as just happening naturally, you know, as these digital tools are becoming ever more available, people are shifting their mindsets about how to go about uh, their science and as the new wave of people are coming through now are starting to come into the lab um, these are people of a generation for whom digital tools are uh, a lot less remarkable than there might be for the likes of, of, of my generation and so you know we, we just uh, you can start to see those cultures starting to come together quite naturally which I think is a really exciting thing given the power of what can happen if we can bring these two disciplines together I think it's such a good point because everyone or most people can be intimidated by technology at times. And it's sort of like getting your new mobile phone or your new cell phone and going, oh boy, what does this have to do? You know, what can this do? And, and learning all, but, but, you know, before too long, you're using all of the apps and, and all of the new with no problem. And so it's an interesting point to think about the more that we're exposed to just this, the more for my generation as well, uh, we get used to this and we sort of uh, adapt to it. But it is an interesting point that the generations that are, are coming up now are, are more comfortable just innately with that. And, um, and that's likely to continue with the generations behind them. So I, I think that's an interesting point. And I, and I think it's sometimes difficult for generations that aren't used to it to adopt these technologies because there's, uh, as I mentioned, some maybe some fear or some intimidation there. But I think it's important that we always try to look for more efficient ways to do things and, and better ways to do things. And even if that means we have to, you know, sometimes take a little bit of time to learn the new technology, it's worth it. And, and, and we've seen this. I mean, what, what we try to do as a software company is we try to make it as accessible as possible, right? And you used the example of a mobile phone and actually you know my young daughters can already use my mobile phone with kind of quite alarming ease these are remarkably easy bits of technology to use and I think in the lab you know we've been quite poorly served in that way for quite a while you know the software is often very very technical um, and you know you'll have very different types of software for all the different bits of equipment but that doesn't need to necessarily be the case I don't think any of the bits of hardware are necessarily more complex than something like a smartphone, which has you know, a huge number of very complex bits of integrated hardware within it. Um, and yet we can use it effortlessly and orchestrate the functions of all those hardware with a few taps. 
So I think there is a lot of room for, yes, I mean, scientists being open to using new technologies. And, um, you know, we've certainly seen that the people that have got the most out of Anthra so far have actually had it as a key part of their strategy, if you like, over time. You know, once we've delivered that first bit of value of a proof of concept or something like that, then they've really kind of then uh, dug in to see all the value that they can get from the software. But at the same time, you know, we need to be making an effort from the software side to make it as usable as possible, to make it as, as accessible as possible. Um, and these days, the modern software industry has a lot of roles within it, which are dedicated to exactly that, to making the software um, that much more usable and approachable. And also just the way that software is delivered these days, you know, we're, we're used to software being delivered as, you know, a single thing. Um, or we used to be used to uh, having software being delivered as a single thing, which then that was just what it was. That's what we had to put up with. But these days we're much more, more used to kind of updates of software, which are slowly molding it to being ever more user friendly and ever more approachable to just uh, an everyday human being, you know. And so I think all of these things are making technology just that much more uh, available than it might have been before. And by combining all of these things, I think we can unlock the um, powers that uh, technology can offer for biology. I think that's so true. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It was really interesting. I'm, I'm always uh, very keen to learn new things about biomanufacturing and particularly when it comes to, uh, as I mentioned, tools and techniques and things to make bioprocessing more efficient and the incorporation of technology uh, to do that is, is particularly interesting. I'm wondering um, if you have anything else that you'd like to add for listeners before we close today. No, not particularly. I think we've covered things um, pretty well. You know, these are complex subjects and uh, they can often take a bit of uh, talking through, but thanks for taking the time uh, with me today. It's been a really good chat. Yes, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.